When I left home to attend college, I had been a Christian for less than a year. And I showed up at my new college campus and I was eager to grow in my faith and so I became an active part of the Christian group there on campus. There were about 50 people in that group and most of them were a lot like me, but there were some who were very different than me. I'd grown up in a middle-class suburb and one of the people that I met was Alex, an African-American from inner city Los Angeles. There was Javier, who was Mexican. There was Cindy, the farm girl from the Midwest. And then there was Barney, and Barney was Jewish, but had come to believe that Jesus Christ was his Messiah. Now, because of the differences, it wasn't always easy to be in community together. But we trusted that God would bring us to unity and help us learn how to live together and worship together and pray together and study together and become one body in Christ. Well, this group of Christians, we started meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. <coughs> Excuse me. And we started working our way through the book of Acts. <coughs> Excuse me. Now remember, I was a very new believer and I didn't know much about Christianity. And I had not realized that virtually all of the early Christians came from a Jewish background. And so we're working our way through the book of Acts and chapter after chapter, I'm reading about all these Jewish people who are followers of Jesus. And I start looking around at our group and I said to myself, Barney's the only guy here with a Jewish background. How did the rest of us get into the club? <laughs> How did the rest of us get into God's family? When did he start to welcome Gentiles into the community of faith so we can become part of the kingdom of God? Well, then we reached Acts chapter 10, and I got my answer. And that's where we learn that God is serious about bringing the good news of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone in the world Gentiles as well as Jews. Unfortunately, the Jewish believers at first didn't understand this, even though God had made it clear for years that the Jewish people were to be a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish people were supposed to help the Gentiles understand the goodness of God and help draw them toward God. But unfortunately, the Jewish people kept turning inward. And rather than make an effort to bring outsiders into God's family, they preferred to keep outsiders outside. Well, then Jesus showed up. God in human form, and everything changed. Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit prompted Peter to say these incredible words, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that's the promise. But listen what Peter says next. This promise is for you, your children, and for all. All who are far off. Not some. All. And yet Peter 
even as he was being inspired by the Spirit to speak those words, he didn't grasp the implications of what he was saying. And that's because he had been conditioned to believe that only Jews were fully acceptable to God. And Jews were the insiders. So Peter thinks that all only refers to all the people like him. It certainly doesn't include Gentiles because they are outsiders. Now, two weeks ago, we saw how God brought the Samaritans into this new community called the church as followers of Jesus. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, but at least they were somewhat acceptable because, because they were sort of half-Jews. They followed part of the Old Testament law. But Gentiles? Those people were pagans. They were disgusting. And yet the incredible truth is that Jesus wants everyone to become part of God's kingdom because all really does mean all. And as we're about to see, God drives this message home by working through Peter once again, just like he did on the day of Pentecost. And God is going to confront Peter with the narrowness of his understanding of the kingdom of God and enlarge that understanding. And so what we have today is the story of how Gentiles, which I assume includes probably all of us, how Gentiles became part of God's family. And it begins with a Gentile named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Always kind of terrifying when an angel shows up, isn't it? But here's what's really interesting. When God decided to bring the Gentiles into the community of faith, he probably couldn't have picked someone who was more of an outsider than Cornelius, as verse 1 makes clear. Because Cornelius is not only a Gentile, he lives in Caesarea. Now that city is the headquarters of the occupying Roman Empire, so it's full of Gentiles and it even has a temple devoted to the worship of the emperor Caesar Augustus. That's why the city's called Caesarea. Every faithful Jew considers Caesarea to be a city full of heathen idol worshipers. And that's Cornelius lives. So he's not just a Gentile. He's a Gentile from Caesarea. And even worse, he's a centurion, which means he is a dedicated military officer. He represents the might and the power of Rome, that power which has overthrown Israel and their independence and turned it into a vassal state. And even worse, Cornelius is part of the Italian regiment, which means he comes from the heart of the Roman Empire. A lot of Roman officers are foreign conscripts, but not him. He's a homegrown guy. 
So Cornelius is a Gentile with a Gentile name who lives in a Gentile city. He's a Gentile military man, and he's Italian. He's a Roman's Roman. And in the eye of every Jew, including those Jews who become followers of Jesus, Cornelius is the embodiment of a pagan, heathen dog. And yes, Jews referred to Gentiles with words just like that. So from the perspective of a Jewish Christian, Cornelius is an outsider's outsider. And yet, somehow, some way, as we read in verse 2, this man has become a worshiper of God. We, we don't know how. Maybe it was when he looked up at the sky and considered the vastness of the heavens. Perhaps it was when he noticed the beauty and wonder of creation all around him. Did he perhaps notice the rhythm of the seasons and the cycle of life and become convinced that it couldn't just be a cosmic accident? However it occurred, Cornelius reached out to God and became a man of faith. And among other things, this reminds us that the Holy Spirit always is at work in this world, striving to open the eyes of men and women and draw them to God because that's the Holy Spirit's primary ministry. And, and Cornelius responds to that. And he responds in tangible ways as he diligently reaches out to God in prayer, and he generously gives away some of his money to people living on the, the margins. He gives alms, as they called it in those days. And so Cornelius is a worshiper of God and a seeker of God. But he's not yet part of the community of faith because the Jewish Christians believe that people like him are unfit for God. Thankfully, God has a different view. And so Cornelius, this spiritual outsider, gets a personal visit from an angel. And that's because God is going to dramatically draw Cornelius and his family and his friends into the community of faith. And God will do that by recalibrating the worldview of Peter and the other apostles. And so as the vision continues, the angel tells Cornelius, go get Peter. Let's see what happens next. And he said to him, that's the angel speaking to Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, that's Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Excuse me. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Peter is staying about 35 miles away from Caesarea in this town called Joppa. And Cornelius has no idea who Peter is. But the angel says, go get him. And he even tells him the exact house where Peter's staying. Now, Cornelius has never been visited by an angel before. It's obviously a scary experience. And what does he do? He trusts what he sees and what he hears. 
And so he immediately sends some men to invite Peter to come to his house. I find myself wondering, what would you and I do in that situation? Would we respond to such a strange vision with doubt? Or would we respond with faith? I hope we would be like Cornelius. God speaks through this angel, and Cornelius immediately responds. This man is not wishy-washy. There's no hesitation. He is a man of faith and strong character. Now, meanwhile, while that's going on in Cornelius' home, God is preparing Peter for a surprise visit from Cornelius' representatives. And this is not a visit Peter would welcome because while Cornelius is an outsider's outsider, Peter would view himself as an insider's insider. After all, he's Jewish. And he's not some foreign Jew, he's from Israel. He speaks Hebrew, the language of the chosen people. And he also was one of Jesus' original hand-picked disciples. And he was part of Jesus' inner core. And Peter's view would be this. Guys like me, we have to keep up the standards so we don't associate with Gentiles. But that's about to change. Because God interrupts Peter at prayer and gives him a very unusual and very disturbing vision. Let's continue on. Verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that's Cornelius' entourage, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing, I love that description, <laughs> the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I mean, let's face it, this is a very bizarre vision. Peter sees this thing that looks like a sheet drop down from heaven, and it's filled with a wild animal park. And God says, eat up, Peter. Now, Peter's a faithful Jew, which means he follows the Jewish dietary laws, laws that differentiate between clean and unclean foods. Peter never eats any unclean animal because he believes it will spiritually defile him. And for the same reason, he never associates with an unclean person like a Gentile because he believes it will spiritually defile him. And with this vision, God is now changing the rules. He says, whatever I say is clean is clean. Whatever I make clean is clean. And God is using this vision about food as a metaphor to make a point about people. 
There are some animals that make better food than others. I'd rather eat a steak than a snake. But if I eat a snake, it doesn't defile me because it's not unclean. There's no animal that's off limits. Likewise, all human beings have been made in the image of God, so no person is unclean. No group of human beings is unclean. And I might like some people better than others, but I can gladly and freely associate with anyone. I should never look at any person as inferior or any group of people as inferior because God made those human beings in his image just as he made me. And that's the message that God gives to Peter. Now, the rest of the story is quite long. So what I want to do at this point is summarize what takes place in verses 17 through 43 rather than take the time to read the whole passage. And what we learn is that initially Peter has no idea exactly what this vision means, but he begins to get an inkling because the minute the vision ends, these representatives from Cornelius show up. And Peter's just seen this image of unclean foods, and maybe, just maybe, God is using this to talk to him about unclean people like these Gentile visitors on the doorstep. Maybe God's saying, Peter, you need to be more accepting of such people. And if so, if, if Peter's right, if that's what God is saying to him, then it's huge because up to this point, Peter thinks that only a limited number of Gentiles might ever be acceptable to God. Only a very small handful of Gentiles have become, become followers of Jesus. Well, there's, a, there's a famous example in the book of Acts. I believe it's in chapter 8. Peter knows that his fellow apostle Philip once baptized an Ethiopian government officials. Well, Ethiopians aren't Jews, they're Gentiles. But here's the thing. All the apostles view that sort of thing as the exception. And, and they're willing, grudgingly willing, to accept a Gentile here and a Gentile there, but not Gentiles, Gentiles everywhere. Because Gentiles are unclean outsiders. And so the Jewish believers don't ever think of them as spiritually lost people who need God. But God now puts Gentiles squarely on Peter's radar by sending this delegation from Cornelius. And these visitors tell people that Cornelius is eager to learn more about God. In fact, the expressions of Cornelius', Cornelius faith and his acts of charity have even made him popular among the Jewish people. And Peter listens to this. And he responds by doing something almost unthinkable. He invites these Gentiles into the house as his guests. He wouldn't have done that before. And what we see is that God is starting to let God work on his mind and heart. Peter is starting to let God break down in him some of these traditional relational barriers. And Peter is able to do that because whatever his other faults, he's a man of character with a heart for God. That's his core. 
So Cornelius' delegation spends the night. They share a meal with Peter, and the next morning they head off to Cornelius' house. Peter takes a small group of friends along with him. And when they arrive in Caesarea, what do they do? They go into Cornelius' house. Peter goes into the house of a Gentile. That simple act is pushing through a major social, spiritual, ethnic barrier for him. And then when Peter and his friends get inside, he discovers that, that Cornelius is so excited to have this apostle of Jesus come and tell them about God that he's drawn a crowd. He's got family and friends and neighbors, all kinds of people there to learn more about God. And Peter, Peter was expecting to meet with this one Gentile and tell him about Jesus, and now he's got an entire household full of Gentiles. It's enough to give a good, faithful Jew a case of the hives. And how does Peter respond? Unfortunately, he responds with condescension. Despite the fact that Cornelius is hungry for God, and despite the fact that his representatives have been gracious and humble, people makes it very clear, I'm an insider, and you're outsiders. You see, he doesn't quite get it yet. And so he says to them, hey, I'm a Jew. And you know, I, I don't associate with people like you. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone unclean. So here I am. And I wonder, do you and I ever overtly or covertly communicate that kind of message to people who are uncomfortably different from us. When we're with people who are not like us, do we ever speak or act with condescension? I, I hope not. But Peter does because he's not yet fully invested in what's happening. At this point, God is using him as a missionary, but he's very much a reluctant missionary. He's really not there out of, out of concern for the spiritual condition of the Gentiles. He's not there because he loves them or wants to see them in God's family. He's there out of obedience. And truth be told, he'd probably rather not be there at all. But here's what I find fascinating. Despite his obvious discomfort with the situation, despite his spiritual pride, he is, as I said a minute ago at root, a man of character with a heart for God. And he loves God and wants to do what is right. And so they want to learn about Jesus, and he faithfully preaches a short message about Jesus. He tells these eager Gentiles that the coming of Jesus was proclaimed by the prophets. He tells them that Jesus was crucified, that he was raised back to life. And Peter says, guess what? I'm not giving you this as a secondhand story. I was an eyewitness to all of this. So what I'm telling you is true. And then something amazing happens. While Peter still is speaking, before he even finishes his sermon, God himself acts in a very dramatic way to welcome these Gentile outsiders into God's family. And so let's dive back into the passage and see what happens in verses 44 to 48. 
While Peter still was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Wouldn't that be wild? <laughs> if I was up here speaking and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came and just stirred things up. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I think it's really important for us to see exactly what God is doing here. He's recreating the day of Pentecost miracle, only this time he does it for the Gentiles. It's the day of Pentecost for the rest of us. God sends his Holy Spirit to fill the minds and the hearts of, of the Gentiles listening to Peter, so they give praise to God by speaking in tongues. Now, we need to understand exactly what that means, so let's think back to what happened on the original day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. We talked about that back in June. And on that day of, of Pentecost, there were Jerusalem Jewish Christians, and they miraculously started speaking in foreign languages that they did not know. Human languages. But those foreign languages were understood by foreign Jews who were visiting Jerusalem. And they heard God being praised in their own native languages. It wasn't gibberish. And see, this is what made it an attention-grabbing miracle. And, and I have to believe that the same thing must be happening here. I think some of these Gentiles are speaking languages that they don't humanly know that Peter and his entourage will understand. And what's the language most likely to be that that would happen in? It would be Hebrew. I think Cornelius starts praising God in Hebrew. And let's face it, if that in fact happened, if Cornelius starts to spontaneously praise God in the native language of God's chosen people, that would rock Peter to his core. And that's part of what would make this an attention-grabbing miracle. Now that's just my theory. But whatever happens, God supernaturally does something amazing. And yet, as awesome as it is, we need to note the way it's described here in our passage because it highlights the way the Jews viewed the Gentiles as inferior. According to verse 45, the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. <laughs> oh, even, even the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. You see, these Jewish Christians are amazed that these people they have viewed as lowly, pagan dogs now are equal with them in the sight of God. And Peter, the reluctant missionary, is overwhelmed at what God has done, and so he no longer steps, holds back, but he steps in now to align himself fully with what God is doing. And that's what a person of godly character does. Whatever our own instinctive ability to dislike things or to resist things, when we see God at work, if we have a godly character, oh, we step in and say, God, if you're at work, I'm going to walk beside you, and I'm going to be part of what you're doing. 
And God's given the gift of the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles, so Peter wants them to be baptized right away to demonstrate their faith and to receive the fullness of new life in Christ. And we see then that Peter is willing to accept these Gentiles as full members of God's family. And what has just happened here is revolutionary. It's exciting. And we know from other scriptures that the angels of heaven are rejoicing because now there are some new citizens of the kingdom of God. This should be a cause for incredible celebration. But not everyone sees it as good news. And so in the first part of chapter 11, we learn that some other Jewish Christians can't yet accept the fact that God has welcomed Gentiles into the family. They can't believe that all means all. And so when they hear what's happened, they call Peter on the carpet for taking part in what they view as an unseemly incident. Peter's welcomed Gentiles. He's shown hospitality to unclean people. He's eaten with them. He stayed in their home, and they stayed in his. Oh, that's so appropriate. It's so defiling. What does Peter think he's doing? And so Peter just describes the incredible vision he received from God, a vision where God made it clear that nothing he makes is unclean. And on the heels of that vision, Cornelius' men showed up, Expressing hunger for God, what could Peter do but go with them and talk to them about Jesus? And then Peter tells these fellow Jewish Christians the final part of the story about God pouring out his spirit onto the Gentiles. And then as he does so, one thing becomes indelibly clear to that group. When it comes to the opportunity to be part of God's kingdom, there are no outsiders. Everyone is welcome. And we see that in verses 15 to 18 of chapter 11. This is Peter speaking now to these Jewish believers who've called him to account for doing that which is inappropriate. And at the final part of the story, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so these Jewish Christians hear Peter's report, and when they get the report of what God's done, they just sit there quietly for a while. They're sitting in stunned silence, trying to absorb the impact of what's taken place. It's incredible for them to realize, and I'm sure still hard for them to accept that God wants his kingdom to be a diverse community of faith consisting of Jews and Gentiles. 
But that's what God wants. And that's why God gave his church a great commission to take the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth because all means all. And this means is as the gospel goes out and as the disciples of Jesus faithfully carry that message around the world, there will be no limits, none, on God's family. And the church of Jesus Christ will glow to include Africans and Arabs and Asians and Europeans. It will include people from every tribe, every nation, and every language group. Because God says, there's no outsiders to my invitation. God's invitation is universal. And it's so simple. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all, all who are far off. No one is outside. Anyone can receive this promise from God. Even the Gentiles. And Peter, the reluctant missionary, finally gets it. The Jewish Christian leaders of the church finally get it. And God's invitation of redemption for all people was true on the day of Pentecost. It was true on this day we've just read about, the day that Cornelius was baptized and received the Holy Spirit. And this invitation is just as true today for every single person in our world. So what do we do now with this unusual and amazing story? How should this historical moment shape your life and mine? Well, first we need to realize that prior to this time in history, gods and religions were almost exclusively linked to specific natures, nations and cultures. For example, Molech was a god of the Ammonites. And when their empire faded out, so did their god. Asher was a god of the Assyrians. When their empire died, so did their god. Nobody worships Moloch and Asher anymore. And the god of the Bible, up until this moment, was primarily but not exclusively the god of the Jews. But from this point forward, it's abundantly clear that he wants to be the god of everyone. And because of what God did on this day through Peter and Cornelius, the Christian community grew and became the first truly global international community of faith. Even today, most other religions are dominated by one particular ethnic group. Not Christianity. Followers of Jesus can be found on every continent among all different kinds of people. We're part of a faith that started in Israel and it spread east and west and it now covers the globe. And the world center of Christianity today in terms of population of believers is Africa. We are part of an amazing international church. And so the actions of God recorded here in Acts chapter 10 changed history. And because of this moment, Gentiles, including Gentiles like me, have been invited to become part of the community of faith. And so we need to be deeply grateful that when God says, 
all. He means all. Or we would not have been grafted into God's family. Because of what started here in Acts 10, when I was a young teenager, the invitation to become part of God's family was presented to me, and I was able to respond because I wasn't an outsider. I wasn't excluded from the chance to embrace the promises of God. Here's what happens sometimes, though. You know, there's that illustration they talk about, you know, you get to be part of a group, and after you get to be an insider, then you close the door and you want to keep the other people outside. (laughs) And sometimes we in the church can be kind of like the Jews used to be. And we can be like Peter. We can start to put limits on who we think is acceptable to God. We can act with condescension toward people that we might view as outsiders. And so I wonder, are there, are there certain nationalities or ethnic groups or other categories of people that we disparage or feel uncomfortable about or just don't want to be bothered with? Are there groups that we'd rather hold at arm's length Years ago, our church in Southern California started a Spanish-speaking worship service for all of the immigrants that were arriving in our community. And one church member confronted me because he was very upset. And here's what he said. He said, we invest money in missions to lead those people, isn't that an interesting phrase, to lead those people to Jesus over there, and we want them to stay over there, And we don't want to encourage them to come here by accepting them as part of our church. I don't know how that hits you, but that doesn't hit me very well. And I hope hope we never adopt attitudes like that. Because all means all. And I hope that anyone who walks in the door of Thurston Christian Church, regardless of their background, regardless of whatever group we may think they're a part of, that they are warmly welcomed. And if they're a seeker, that we would embrace them and love on them and share the gospel with them. And if they make that, if they respond to that invitation, become a follower of Jesus, that we would fully embrace them as part of our family, even if they are uncomfortably different from us. I think if Peter were standing here today, he'd tell us that this interaction with Cornelius was a defining moment in his life. It was a moment when he had to enlarge his view of the kingdom of God. It was a moment when he had to stop being a reluctant missionary to the world around him. And based on what he learned that day from God, I think he'd urge us never to fall into exclusionary thinking. I think he'd say to us, There's really no insiders and there's no outsiders because when God our Father says all, oh, he means all. And so is there someone in your life, someone in my life who might be like Cornelius, someone who might be uncomfortably different from us, but who needs Jesus?
rather than try to avoid them? How can we extend God's welcome to them and invite them to experience new life in the kingdom of God? How can you and I avoid the trap of becoming a reluctant missionary to the world around us? You and I are surrounded by people who are very far from God. And yes, it's true that some of them are hostile to faith. But more of them than we realize are spiritually hungry and spiritually curious. And my prayer is that we would be willing to share with them just as Peter shared with Cornelius. And that we might have the privilege to bring some of those people into God's family. Please pray with me. Lord, you are an amazing God. And we're so grateful that your love extends to everyone, to people who are like us and to people who are not like us. And I pray, Father, that we would never create artificial barriers that keep other people at arm's length. And help us to see the people around us through your eyes, Father. And to be open to everyone you send into our path. Help us to believe that the message of Jesus and your kingdom truly is for everyone. And help, help us, Father, not to just say that, but to live it. And so when you place a Cornelius into our path, May we be willing to share the truth about Jesus with them. May we be faithful as Peter was faithful. And I offer this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen.